From Tennessee to Texas, Utah to New Jersey, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the Federal Reserve has once again implemented a major increase in interest rates to fight inflation. David Beckworth from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here to talk about the impact. Control of the U.S. Senate is on the line in November, and many of the races are razor close. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. President Joe Biden says the COVID-19 pandemic is over, so now he has no legal basis for moving forward with student loan forgiveness. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And that student loan forgiveness executive order is reverse Robin Hood, robbing from the poor to give to the rich. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. For the third meeting in a row, the Federal Reserve has hiked the interest rate target by 75 basis points, this in an effort to bring down record-high inflation. Here to talk about the impact and what might happen next is David Beckworth. He is a senior policy fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. David, welcome back to American Radio Journal. David, the Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve met this past week, and once again, we have a significant increase in interest rates. Tell us what the Fed did. Well, the Fed this past week increased interest rates 0.75%, which was expected, but is still very large by historical standards. And the Fed's been doing this the past few meetings. It's been increasing by a lot. So now the Fed's target interest rate is at 3 to 3.25%. It has a, a range there, a quarter percent of a range, but it's increased it dramatically. It was close to zero beginning of the year. Now it's all the way up to three and a quarter. And uh, what's interesting is they're likely to increase it even more going forward. In the news conference that was held afterward, did the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell give any hint as to whether should we expect additional 75 basis point increases? Is this going to happen for months? How long do we expect this to take place? the Federal Reserve, the members of the committee, they actually provided in this meeting, not every meeting, but this meeting, they provided a report that shows a projection of where they think it, things are going to go. So it's kind of a, an average everyone. So you don't know what Jay Powell's particular forecast is, but you look at the average and what we see is that the, the median outlook of the FOMC member has rates going to about four and a half percent next year and staying up there through 2024. So the next two years, it has rates elevated. And what's interesting, I guess, on top of that is they show the unemployment rate going up too. So we're about 3.7% unemployment, still low by historical standards, but they show the unemployment rate going up quite a bit next year. And he wouldn't say this outright, but what this implies is the Fed is willing to go through a recession if needed, to lower inflation. And that's kind of the the takeaway. Chair Powell invoked his Interpol Volcker, the famous Fed chairman from the early 80s who beat back double-digit inflation from the 1970s, and it came through in this meeting. So the Fed's willing to risk a recession, which some would argue we're already in, and that would include higher unemployment. Isn't this pretty strong medicine to try to bring inflation down? It is strong medicine to bring inflation down. I would note, though, that the fear is that inflation gets unanchored, that it gets in people's mindsets. 
There's a study that showed uh, recently that if inflation gets above 5%, and this is based on countries around the world, that people begin to pay close attention, much closer than normal, and they begin to bake into their financial contracts, their, their wages, their, their mortgage, everything, expectations of higher inflation to the point it becomes a self-fulfilling psychology. And so the Fed wants to avoid that. The Fed wants to rein it in at, at, at high cost of possibly recession. Again, they don't want that, but they're willing to go there if needed. We've had this high inflation rate now, David, for about a year now, and and the current rate of over 8% for several months. Is it maybe a little bit too late? Are people already baking this into their expectations? They may be, and that's what happened in the 70s. The Fed didn't do a good job, and then Paul Walker came in and cleaned up the mess. And so you can think of the Fed doing that. Now the Fed's going to apply some some tough medicine to do it. So, yeah, it may be in people's psychology already, but you can fix it. It just may be a very painful ordeal to get through to the other side. So the, the Fed is doing what it needs to do, but you're right, this should have been done sooner. If the Fed has started tightening interest rates in 2021, by the summer to fall, we would be in a much better situation today. What impact then does this have on the average consumer? Uh, already, consumers are being battered about with the high inflation rate. Now, there are higher interest rates. What does this do to the person sitting at the kitchen table planning the family budget? Over the long run, the silver lining will be things won't be as expensive. Some, some things may actually come down. We've seen gas prices coming down, some other maybe commodities, lumber, maybe some food. But in the short to medium term over the next year or so, what this means is you may lose their job. Some people may be out of work. It also means, you know, immediate such as mortgages may become more expensive. As we look out and we see mortgage interest rates going above 6%, which just is mind-blowing given a year ago or so it was down to 3%. So we've seen some big changes in, in the cost of financing, and we're likely to see an increase in number of people without work. When it comes to businesses, David, who are planning perhaps expansion or growth, is this rise in interest rates, which is going to, of course, as you just pointed out, it's going to cost more to borrow money uh, in order to expand a physical plant, a factory, whatever. Is this going to have a negative effect on businesses and plans for their own growth? Absolutely. So if they expect sales to go down, which is what would happen in a recession and when people are out of work. You can't expand capacity. You can't build plants. You can hire people. We're already beginning to see some firms do layoffs. In fact, just today, big part was out about the mortgage industry because it's so close to ground zero, so to speak, of the tightening of the financial conditions, and they're laying people off across the board. So it's going to spread probably more widely over this next year. But you'll see people getting laid off. You'll see firms spending less on, on machines, on plants, and on capital. Isn't that the point, though? Isn't that what the Fed's actually trying to do, to try to cool the economy down because it's been overheated over the last few years uh, as it has rebounded here from the COVID pandemic? It is. It's definitely going to be meeting the objective of the Fed to get prices stable, but it's coming at this, this steep cost, which may have been avoided. Now, some of the inflation we probably couldn't have avoided, the inflation from shortage of oil or the Russia-Ukraine war or the supply disruptions from the pandemic, some of that would have been here in any event. But we could have avoided that part that comes from all the dollars circulating around from the big and generous fiscal package from Congress in 2021. And then again, the Fed could have offset some of that pressure had they tightened sooner. So 
the Fed is playing catch up to what it, where where it should have been had it done its job sooner in 2021. Interesting, as the Fed is playing catch-up, we had recently the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which once again uh, borrowed hundreds of billions of dollars and injected them and is going to be injecting them in the economy. So do we actually see competing forces here? The Fed's trying to cool things off, but federal spending is heating things back up? Yeah, all else equal, that's right. The advocates of the Inflation Reduction Act are arguing that the spending will build new capacity in the economy. But even if that were true, that takes a long time to do it. And I question whether that's going to be true. But even if that's true, it takes a long time to, to increase the supply side of the economy. So at, at best, it, it's neutral. At worst, it's increasing spending and inflationary pressures. I think, though, the Fed, at the end of the day, can win this battle against the spending if the Fed wants to, it can raise rates high enough to offset any additional dollars being injected through Congress. Sounds like trying to put together a bit of a Rubik's Cube here to make it all work together. <laughs> yes. We have been talking with David Beckworth. David is a senior research fellow uh, at the Mercatus Center, which, of course, is at George Mason University. David, tell us a bit about Mercatus. Where can folks also go to read your writings, research papers, articles on these issues? Well, I'm at David Beckworth at Twitter. And the Mercatus Center is at Mercatus.org, and you can find our work there. David Beckworth of the Mercatus Center. David, thank you for being back with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth is in Washington, D.C., where Republican leadership in the Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives, has introduced its commitment to America. Sounds a bit like the contract with America, Scott. Well, they're, they're different documents, obviously. We, we always see the, the House majority uh, try to lay out a vision of policy and, and commitments that they're willing to make to the American people should they retain power in Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives. So this week what we saw was the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, who's hoping someday to be the Speaker of the House, come out with this one-page document that any American can read very quickly, and it's called The Commitment to America. It's making a bunch of commitments to those people related to various policies from border security to preserving the right to life, Second Amendment rights, dealing with inflation, energy crisis that we've got here in Washington, D.C., all sorts of issues that are all packed into this messaging document, a marketing document that I think is what they would call it. Obviously, in 1994, with the contract with America, Newt Gingrich laid out a vision of specific legislation and and we obviously at Club for Growth want to see uh, the House leadership come out with specifics on exactly what they're going to do come January in regards to uh, advancing legislation and building out promises that we can actually make law once we regain the White House in 2025. And, and hopefully we'll have the Senate next cycle as well. But I think you and I are about to talk about that, too, right? We are. We're going to talk about these key Senate races. Scott, it seems like the polls in all these toss-up states are really narrowing over the last couple of weeks. It was a tough summer for uh, many Republican candidates. A lot of these Democrats are very well-funded. who have been up on TV. And really, some Republicans haven't had the ability to, to go up and, and respond yet. But we're starting to see some of that now. And we had two months of energy prices, gas prices throughout America actually improving following you know the historic rise that we saw throughout the late spring and early summer where gasoline reached over five dollars a gallon but those uh 
Republican candidates in a lot of these Senate races are, are starting to narrow the gap. I think it's a reality that more and more Americans are starting to dig into the differences between the Republican candidates that are offering a new vision and uh, many of these Democrats that are very much tied to President Biden and everything that he's sort of enacted on the American people in regards to this inflation period that certainly call it caused an economic recession. So when I look at races like the Arizona Senate race, we've got Blake Masters out there. He's closing the gap on Mark Kelly. This race is, is certainly within the margin of error at this point. So Arizona, obviously a big pickup opportunity. Then I think if you look over at Georgia, uh, everybody's really impressed by Governor Brian Kemp and the way that he's been able to run his gubernatorial campaign. And he's way up on Stacey Abrams. So what you've got there are, are strong coattails that give Herschel Walker a real fighting chance. He's a you know, former MMA guy, not only just an NFL player and Heisman winner, and he's got a real chance there against Raphael Warnock. I think uh, some polls are actually showing Herschel Walker up by about 2 or 3% in that race. And, you know, Warnock has a considerable funding advantage in that race. So we're happy to see Walker closing the gap and obviously think Georgia is a real good pickup opportunity. Moving around to the state, Nevada, uh, Adam Laxalt is running a, a, a really strong campaign as well. That's a 50-50 race against Cortez Masto. And, you know, I would expect Adam Laxalt to, to carry that. And the point is, with these three pickup opportunities, we also have New Hampshire, which is a little bit more of a stretch, uh, but certainly in play, given the dynamics of New Hampshire politics. Don Bulldock is the candidate against Maggie Hassan. Those are four pickup opportunities for Republicans. They're all starting to look a lot better. And this idea of swinging the 50-50 Senate to a Senate majority for Republicans is certainly in play. Even the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee's chairman, Rick Scott, said earlier this week that he believes 100 percent that we will flip the Senate red. Let's move now to several states where we currently see Republicans in the Senate but are being seriously challenged by Democrats. I would start out uh, with your, your home state of Pennsylvania. Obviously, Pat Toomey retired, so that's an open race. And we've got Dr. Mehmet Oz against Fetterman, who's Lieutenant Governor, a big guy, suffering health issues, uh, had a stroke earlier this summer. And also, it's been recently revealed that he's got a, a pretty significant growth on the back of his neck. Uh, that race is tightening. I think Pennsylvania voters are really starting to question whether or not Fetterman has the ability to carry out the duties as a United States senator. He's got some speech issues, and you know, there's questions on whether a, a stroke victim's brain can process uh, the ability to, to really engage in debate on the Senate floor. So that one's actually, I, I think, turning into um, one of the more interesting races throughout the country. And when you look over at Wisconsin Senate race, one of my old bosses, Ron Johnson, is taking on the lieutenant governor there, Mandela Barnes. Uh, Senator Johnson is in a good position in terms of fundraising Barnes. Uh, hasn't been able to raise as much money because that was a late primary. And so Johnson has a bit of an advantage there, and we feel really good about his ability to win re-election. A big, big race heading all the way out west in the Utah Senate. Senator Mike Lee is running against so-called independent Evan McMullen. I think the listeners might remember Evan McMullen as the independent candidate that ran against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Well, now McMullen convinced the Democrats in Utah to support his campaign and not even put forward a so-called candidate through their own convention. And he was basically nominated by the Democrats, but he's running as a 
so-called independent. That race is, is quite candidly a little outrageous because Mike Lee, you know, he's one of 50 United States senators that are Republicans. 48 of his colleagues have endorsed his reelection, but the junior senator from his home state, Mitt Romney, has refused to endorse Mike Lee, saying that he's friends with both McMullen and Mike Lee. Well, McMullen's not going to be caucusing with the Republicans, so I think it's a little outrageous that Senator Romney won't support his senior senator and Mike Lee, who's done a fantastic job for fighting for economic freedom and liberty and opportunity and the things that Club for Growth really cares about. Bouncing around a little bit more, back to Ohio, big race there with Tim Ryan against J.D. Vance. Uh, down in North Carolina, we feel really good about Ted Budd's chances against uh, Sheriff Beasley. Um, that's another big Senate race. I would expect Bud to win that one pretty easily, but still one to really, really watch on election night. All these big uh, open races following the retirements of various senators from Ohio with Rob Portman, North Carolina with Richard Burr, and then obviously your state with Pat Toomey. Those are creating some, some big opportunities for, for new blood in the Senate, really. And then the last state I would just kind of touch on is in the Florida Senate, Marco Rubio is taking on Dal Benning. Rubio's going to, uh, I think, walk away with that one. He's run a strong campaign. He's known for uh, significant ties to the South Florida community within the Cuban community, and, and that's part of why I think uh, we've seen Florida really transition from a purple state to a red state, just given the power of, of the Hispanic vote, not only down south with the Cubans, but also in the I-4 corridor with the Puerto Rican community. We will, of course, continue to keep an eye on all of these races with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, let's end with a few words about the club. Yeah, sure thing. So Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. And please don't hold that against us, but it's uh, where a lot of the action happens in the federal government. So if anybody wants to learn about the issues we care about or the candidates the Club for Growth PAC is supporting, check us out on our website, clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll check in with you next week. Thank you. Okay, thank you. The COVID-19 pandemic is over, so proclaimed by President Joe Biden. What impact will that have on his plans to transfer billions in student loan payments to taxpayers? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explains. On Sunday, President Joe Biden said something that the vast majority of Americans probably agree with and something that, frankly, he should have said a long time ago. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bame with Reason Magazine, and you're listening to American Radio Journal. The pandemic is over. That's what Biden said during an interview on 60 Minutes. And sure, that's not exactly news to most people. I'd throw away my masks in celebration, except, well, I I already did that like more than a year ago. But it absolutely is news when the president of the United States says something like this. And it's news in part because of how it might change Biden's student loan forgiveness plan going forward. So what do student loans have to do with the COVID-19 pandemic? I'm glad you asked. See, for months, there's been this niche legal debate over whether the president actually has the authority to simply wave away student loan debt. Asked about that exact same thing during the summer of 2021, that's more than a year ago, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was pretty blunt. She said the president can't do it, so that's not even a discussion. 
and then went on to say that the president could delay repayment, but that it would take an act of Congress, not an executive order, to cancel student loan debt. And that second part is key. It would take an act of Congress, not an executive order. Now, during the pandemic, Biden assumed emergency powers that he used to delay student loan repayment. And the White House is pointing to those same emergency powers as the legal basis for Biden's decision last month to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for some federal borrowers. And it's actually a little more complicated than that, so bear with me for a minute here. When Biden announced that debt cancellation plan last month, lawyers for the administration pointed to the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, or the HEROES Act of 2003. That was a post-9-11 law that gave permission to the Secretary of Education to waive or modify federal student loan financial assistance programs to help students and their families or academic institutions affected by war or other military operations or a national emergency. And as Reason's Peter Suderman pointed out this week in a piece that you can read at Reason.com, the law was clearly intended as a vehicle to give the president the power to forgive student loan debt for individuals directly involved in fighting the war on terror or as some consequence of 9-11. But what the Biden administration has done is cast a sort of revisionism over all of this and turned it into an all-purpose tool for mass debt forgiveness via executive action premised on the idea that the COVID-19 pandemic was a national emergency. And of course, right there in the HEROES Act, it says national emergency. So the pandemic in this formulation gave Biden some extraordinary powers over student loan debt, powers that under normal circumstances, when there's not an emergency, the president would not have. So yes, all of this is a stretch, and it's certainly possible that the Supreme Court will take a look at this and just laugh directly in the Biden administration's face. But the whole tenuous legal situation becomes a whole lot more tenuous if the emergency is over. And I think that probably explains why the White House has been so keen to roll back and to walk back Biden's comments on 60 Minutes. Here's White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre trying to deny reality on MSNBC this week. Also in the 60 Minutes interview said that the pandemic is over. There's been quite a bit of pushback to that uh, statement by the president. Where is he today on that? So uh, just to step back for a second, what we saw during that interview, uh, 60 minute interview, when he made those comments, he was walking through uh, the the Detroit uh, car show, the halls of the Detroit car show, and he was looking around. We have to remember the last time that they had held that event was three years ago. Even as we're talking about Unga, the president's going to speak shortly, as I just mentioned, we that hasn't been held in, in person for about three Three years as well. So we are in a different time. He's been very consistent about that. And the reason why is because we are now prepared. We are now ready. We know how to deal with uh, this pandemic. It is now more manageable. It's not as disruptive as it's been uh, in the prior in the prior years. Now, if I'm following her argument correctly, I think what she's saying here is we're in a different time and clearly things have changed. But no, the president did not mean to say that we are in a different time and things have changed. Look, this is madness. What the president says matters. And more than that, reality matters. And the president acknowledging reality matters, too. And if that means that You have to go to Congress to get approval for your $500 billion giveaway to college grads? Well, you probably should have done that in the first place. The pandemic is over. 
That means Biden's pandemic student loan powers should be over as well. Even the White House can't deny reality much longer. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. You can check out more of our coverage of this and everything else happening in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. So-called student loan forgiveness simply transfers debt from those with college degrees to those who did not go on to higher education. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this American Radio Journal commentary. The Joe Biden plan to cancel hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan payments has upset people on both sides of the political aisle, liberals and conservatives, for reasons both political and personal. Politically, the plan is an outrageous irony coming from President Joe Biden and progressive supporters like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Think about it. What could be more unprogressive than a policy that takes income from non-college grads to pay off through their taxes the debts of college grads? Those who chose not to go to school, perhaps because they couldn't afford it, will now help bail out those who did go to school. This is Robin Hood in reverse, taking from the poor to give to the rich. Are the Democrats the party of the working class or of educated elites? This policy is regressive. It's a massive wealth transfer from the uneducated class to the educated class. And just wait until the poor feel the inflationary impact of this federal behemoth. Not only is the Biden plan regressive, it is also unnecessary. Aside from the fact that people are morally obligated to pay back money, consider that President Biden and his handlers boast about the nation's low unemployment rate. Well, if employment is good, then why bail out college grads? Are these tough times to get a job or not? I commented recently about the problem of countless job openings going unfilled by young people opting not to join the workforce. Ask restaurant owners about the enormous challenge right now of finding waiters and waitresses. Of course, some people are accepting those jobs as waiters and waitresses, some of them to pay off their student loans. Others accepting those jobs never went to college, but they'll now help pay the loans of those who did go to college and aren't accepting those jobs. Then there is the personal component, which everyone can relate to, including those of us who amassed heaping loans of debts and then struggled to conscientiously pay back money that wasn't ours. Here's my story. I got a master's degree from American University in Washington, D.C. in 1993. It cost a fortune. I got no financial aid, and I really had no conception how onerous that debt would be. I had no debt from my undergraduate degree because my parents invested their life savings in that one and because I worked 20 to 30 hours per week while at the University of Pittsburgh. It took me six years to get my undergraduate degree, but at least I emerged debt-free. For my graduate work, I was not so fortunate. In fact, once my wife and I as newlyweds got our first bill for student loans, we were shocked. She cried. (laughs) She also had gotten a master's degree, and I had gone on to get a PhD. We couldn't conceive how we were going to pay. We certainly were looking to our mechanic and garbage man to help. In fact, for the record, the real scandal here is the outrageously unjustifiable cost of higher education. President Biden and the Democrats ought to be targeting their liberal buddies who run higher ed. So how did my wife and I pay off the debt? Well, I literally had to write a best-selling book. It was called God and Ronald Reagan, published in 2004. Without that book, I don't know how we could have managed. Nonetheless, doing so was a financial and moral obligation. Millions of others have done the same. 
Some did so, actually, just before President Biden stepped in and canceled debt obligations for their former classmates. One wonders how many young people going forward will now wait for their future debts to be canceled by Uncle Sam. So that's my student loan story. What's yours? In fact, there are millions of them. And the Joe Biden White House needs to hear them and hear them all. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KWDVAM in Alexandria, Louisiana, KIOUAM in Shreveport, Louisiana, along with WASGAM in Mobile, Alabama. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.